This parable in Matthew chapter 20, the gospel lesson this morning, is usually known as the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. But it is really first and foremost a parable about the landowner, which is why I have changed the traditional title. Here we have a landowner who seems to be a fountainhead of economic nonsense. I mean, if you ever ran your business this way, if you hired and paid your employees in this fashion, you would soon be out of business. In fact, you'd be facing a class action lawsuit for unfair hiring practices. Unfair compensation practices. Of course, it's, it's precisely the scandal of how the landowner behaves. His weirdness. His eccentricity. Which is being used by Jesus to provoke us into reflection on the nature of the kingdom. Now, this is by all accounts one of the most difficult parables to interpret. But I do think the broader context helps to guide us. It's really important to see that just prior to this text, in Matthew 19, Jesus confronts the rich young man who refused to give up his wealth to inherit the kingdom. And he turns to the disciples and he says, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom. You know, and they say, well, who can be saved then? And Peter asked, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. What then will we have, Peter says. That last part's important. What then will we have? We saw last week Peter's a counter. What are we going to get for leaving everything to follow you? And Jesus' answer is, you'll get plenty. In the world to come, you're going to sit on 12 thrones judging Israel. You'll get a hundredfold. You're going to inherit eternal life. And then we come to the crucial verse, which is right at the end of chapter 19. It is the verse before this parable. Jesus says, But many who are last will be first, and the first last. Notice, that's the text that our parable ends with. The first will be last, the last will be first. So this idea of the first being last and the last being first, it actually brackets the parable. And the parable is told by Jesus to illustrate just what that little saying means. You know, in some contexts, the first will be last and the last will be first. It's pretty straightforward. It turns out here it's a little more difficult. It's a little enigmatic. It's a little less obvious. <coughs> so with that introduction, let's look at the parable itself. We're going to make four points. The first one is the hiring process. The hiring process, which is in verses 1 through 7. The hiring process. The second one is the pay. The pay is in verses 8 through 12. And then the third is the owner's response. The owner's response is in verses 13 through 16. And then there's a fourth point 
call, which I'll call the equality, the equality. So the hiring process, the pay, the owner's response to equality. First, the hiring process. So we're in Matthew chapter 20, verse 1. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner or like the master of a house. So right away, we see the parable is about the employer, not the employees. It's about the landowner, not the laborers. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner. Now, it's not that the, the laborers are unimportant, but the parable is about this weird behavior of the owner of the vineyard. He goes out early in the morning, probably at the break of dawn, he's going to hire laborers for his vineyard. Apparently, he's harvesting grapes, and he wants the job done in a single day. And so he agrees with this first set of workers for the standard daily wage, basically a subsistence wage for day laborers, one denarius. He sends them into the vineyard. This would be around 6 a.m. Their workday would run from 6 a.m., Roughly to sundown, roughly to 6 p.m., and you'd have breaks and time for prayers. It'd be about a 10-hour day. And so in verses, starting in verse 3, all the way down to verse 5, he goes out in the third, he goes out in the sixth, he goes out in the ninth hours, and he hires more workers. This would be about 9 a.m., noon, and 3 p.m., respectively. Notice there's no, there is no agreed-upon wage for these workers. It just says at the end of verse 4, whatever's right, I'll give you. We shouldn't make too much of this. It's really just here, these workers, to help enable our surprise later when the pay is actually distributed. Now, this behavior of the landowner is kind of strange as well. Either he can't figure out how many labor hours he needs for one day's work, which is odd, right? Or he's a compassionate man and he wants to hire as many poor day laborers as he possibly can. That's an option. Or he's responding to some real-time changes and demands in his harvest situation or some combination of these things. But something strange is going on when, and unusual, when you have one day's work to do and you're the owner and you have to make hiring decisions every three hours. But again, these kinds of things can distract us on the parables. You can't deduce any HR lessons from the text. <laughs> the erratic hiring practice is just color to set up the conclusion. The reason we know this is you'll notice those hired in the third, sixth, and ninth hours... The ones hired in the third, sixth, and ninth hours, they are not even mentioned in the conclusion. They're extras in the play. So in verse 6, the owner goes out again in the 11th hour. Now it's about 5 p.m. to hire this final batch of workers. And he asks them, why do you stand here all day? Some translations say all day doing nothing. But really no nothing Nothing negative or pejorative about these workers is implied. And they say, because no one's hired us. It's not that they haven't been looking. 
And the fact that they're still looking or available at 5 p.m. probably speaks well of them. It might imply something about their desperate economic condition. So the landowner at 5 p.m. toward the very end of the day sends them out into the vineyard as well. That's the very eccentric hiring process. And so the second point is the pay. The pay. In verse 8, the evening comes, and in accordance with the law, Leviticus and Deuteronomy forbid withholding wages overnight. You have to pay by the end of the day. So he has the foreman come in and call the laborers and pay them. Again, no significance should be read into the delegation of this to the foreman. Now, one principle, I think, just to step back for a minute here, that allows us to say what is significant and what isn't, maybe not with perfect confidence, but with high confidence, is what scholars call the end stress in the parables, the end stress. That is... And you pick this up naturally, I think, when you read the parables. That is the stuff at the climax of the story. The stuff at the end, that's the really weighty stuff. If the workers in the, in the third, sixth, and ninth hours don't show up at the end, then they're not important. If the foreman doesn't play a big role at the end, well then don't, get, don't follow the foreman down a rabbit trail. End stress is important. Even when there's no interpretation given, the stuff at the end kind of directs us. And in the latter part of this text, the foreman disappears. The people that are on stage at the end of the parables, they're the important people. So the the foreman disappears, the owner takes over, and the owner uh, directs the scene at the end. In any event, the foreman is supposed to to hand out the wages in verse 8, starting with the last ones hired up to the first ones hired. This procedure does two things. It echoes the conclusion of the parable, which will be the last will be first and the first will be last. Pay the ones hired last first. Pay the ones hired first last. But more practically, it allows those who were hired first to see what those hired last got paid. I mean, if the foreman paid the other way, Right, The ones who were hired first would get their pay and they would go home and they wouldn't be around to be outraged. So the text tells us in verse 9 that when those hired in the 11th hour came, they received a denarius, a full day's wor- pay for one hour's work. It's a good deal. Outside of certain union contracts, I'm not sure how you can pull this off. You know, my uncle, my uncle was the head of the Longshoremen Union for the whole port of Miami. Big job. And if any shipping company in the world wanted to bring goods into the port of Miami, they had to negotiate with him, his lawyers, and his bodyguards. And since they had a monopoly on loading ships in the port, the shipping companies always cave. Right? You can always say, if you're the union boss, you say, look, if you don't want to do this, 
then take your goods up the coast to Charleston, but you're not putting them in Miami. And so the shipping companies would constantly capitulate to, to him as the head of the union in, in, during these negotiations. And one perk that his union got for his dock workers was triple time for one hour's work on Sunday. So if you went in on Sunday and worked one hour, you got three days' pay. So imagine three backbreaking days of labor on the docks in the Miami heat. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and you get the same pay as these guys who come in for one hour on Sunday. Because you're not under that cushy contract provision. And you can begin to grasp the emotion of the laborers in our parable then. In verse 10, they're faithful, they're exhausted, they were hired sometime before 6 a.m., and they had agreed to a denarius, but they thought now, they saw the other ones get paid, they thought, well, I guess we'll get more now. That's a reasonable expectation. But the text says each of them also received a denarius. And so they have this reaction. It's remarkably like the older son in the parable of the prodigal son. We can understand why they react so fiercely, can't we? I mean, the owner's policy here strikes deeply. It strikes at the root of our sense of fairness and justice. Of course, Jesus does this kind of thing intentionally in the parables. But this one is a tough one. This is a parable where we all identify, if you will, with the bad guys. They seem to have a legitimate beef. Even after the owner's explanation, we're like, "Eh, I don't know about that. So they grumble against the landowner. In verse 12, they say, these men who were hired last worked only one hour. And you've made them equal to us who've borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day? Notice the, uh, the phrase, you've made them, you've made them equal to us. This is envy. It's not jealousy. Jealousy wants what somebody else has. Somebody has a nice piano, you're jealous because you want it. But envy is more vicious than that. Envy is like, I don't really want the nice piano, but I hate the fact that they have it. I just don't want them to have it. In this case, because it makes them equal to me, to us. I mean, the first workers here, they never say, hey, we should get two denarius. Or give their pay to us. They don't say that. They just say, just don't give it to them. We just don't want them to have it. We don't want them to be equal to us. It's envy. And Jesus is getting at this in this parable. So, the third point is the owner's response. So they object strongly. Finally, verse 13, the owner, who does clearly stand in for God... He speaks to one of the ones hired first. 
maybe their ringleader, and he says to him, friend. Jesus uses this language to show that this is a mild rebuke. Jesus expects the people in the parable to be scandalized. So he says, friend, I'm not being unfair to you. Did you not agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I mean, there's no contract violations. But he doesn't, you know, this doesn't, he doesn't explain the rationale, does he? Nor does he even attempt to justify the scandal. He just says, we had a contract. I gave you what you contracted for. What do you care what I gave the other people? But the, the owner here, he strikes this note of his sovereign freedom in this situation. He says, I want to, or I choose, to give this man who was hired last the same as I gave you. I want to. I choose. I'm sovereign. I'm free. And then he echoes this language of the potter and the clay. He says, don't I have a right to do what I want with my own money? I'm the potter. You're the clay. I'm sovereign. I'm free. And this is this is the simple but hard point of this parable. Simply put, God can do whatever he likes with what is his. He can do whatever he likes with what is his. The owner's point is plain. I'm never unjust. I'm not unfair. But I am the Lord. And I am free. And that means God's grace, his ways, they transcend all of our notions of merit and fairness. Or justice. The kingdom of God, in other, in other words, is not a meritocracy. It's not a reflection of corporate America. It's a different kind of economy. It's a different kind of generosity. My calculus, the Lord is saying, is a strange calculus. Don't read your, the economic order of this age into my kingdom. At the very least, the landowner is saying that. And at the end of verse 15, you see another gentle rebuke to the first hired. He says, are you envious? Because I am generous. It's envy that is the problem here. Now imagine you had this situation and you saw what happened and you were the first hired and your boss called you in and all he said was, hey, you shouldn't be envious. I doubt that that would satisfy you. And I doubt it would protect your boss from lawsuits. It's almost as if Jesus knows the, the landowner's answer is not quite satisfactory. It's Jesus' way of saying, look, I'm not working with your frame of reference. This is not about me trying to satisfy your sense of justice and fairness. That's precisely part of the point. He's, he's, he's basically saying, look, the generosity of my kingdom is so foreign to you that if I were to represent it as a businessman, he would be like no businessman you ever knew. Because we keep falling into this trap of thinking, well, the kingdom of God is kind of like everything else. You know, it's kind of assimilated to all the other orders. Cor corporate America, family life, American life, the kingdom of God. So you tack it onto that. It's basically continuous with all that other stuff. A lot nicer, of course. The benefits are better and all. Jesus says, no, it's strange. 
And that brings us to verse 16. The last will be first and the first last. That, that's the opposite, really, of the uh, you know, works-based world we live in, where right, the, the world's principle is the first will be first, the second will be second, the last will be last. The hardest workers will make the most, the people who come late will make less. Jesus says, no, here, here's the deal. The last are going to be first, and the first are going to be last. So what does this mean in this context? It's crucial to note something here. This is a reversal. This is a reversal which ends in total equality. Notice that in the parable, no one is lost. No one is excluded. Everyone gets a denarius. So I want to try and tie this into some sort of coherent pattern. This, and this is the fourth point, the equality. So contrary to first impressions, I don't believe we can use this parable to teach the equality of rewards in the kingdom. We know from other passages that there are different degrees of rewards. And so that, that raises this question, why the equality here? What's the first will be last, the last will be first? We're still sort of scratching our head even at the end. And I think the distinction lies right here. It lies between rewards in the kingdom and the gift of the kingdom itself. This is the key to this parable. The, the equality lies in this distinction between rewards in the kingdom, which can differ, and the gift of the kingdom itself, the gift of eternal life, which comes to all equally. The gift of the kingdom comes to all equally under the sovereign freedom of God. But there's still a question, right? You might say, well... If the kingdom's a free gift to all, then why does the parable make that point? In the context of labor and work and pay and reward. Seems kind of strange, doesn't it? You're tempted to think, well, the, the, the parable must be teaching that everybody gets the same reward, no matter how long they've labored in the kingdom of God. But that's not what the parable's teaching. Then again, if the parable's teaching that the gift of the kingdom is free, why does it do it in this context? And I think the answer to that is that the kingdom is viewed as future here. Right? This is a gift, the gift of the kingdom, which is received, which is entered into after a lifetime of service. Not on the basis of service, but after a lifetime of service. And so Jesus' point here is that those who've been in the vineyard a long time, especially those who've sacrificed and given up everything like Peter and the disciples, those types of people can become counters. Those of us who've been in the kingdom for decades can become tabulators, counters who fall into some notion of merit and reward, who envy the gift of the kingdom to those who come late. I remember when my grandfather died, uh, he was, uh, how shall I put it? He had a mixed, he had a mixed life, a, r a rough and turbulent life. And, uh, and my grandmother endured. She stayed married to him the whole time and uh, she, uh, she persevered to the end, shall we say. And I remember on his deathbed, my grandfather, 
was visited by some local uh, ministers and received the gospel, embraced the gospel. And I remember my grandmother being extremely aggravated at this. (laughs) I mean, she was really angry that he, after that life and after what she endured, would now get the same reward of the kingdom. That's the attitude of the workers who were hired early. It's not fair. It's not fair. So the the people that are the first workers in this parable, they've forgotten. And you and I, who may have been in in Christ for 30 or 40 or 60 years, you, you forget that you were once like the late hired men. Right? We also, all of us have received the kingdom as a gift. The denarius here in this parable is not a reward of merit. This is the key, I think. The denarius is the ticket to, the, to enter the everlasting kingdom when our service at the end of our days is over. That's what the denarius is. It's the entry ticket. It's not a reward. And in that sense, everyone gets the same ticket. So it's in this context, then, that the phrase, the first will be last and the last will be first, means something like this. Order or length of service doesn't matter in God's bestowal of the kingdom. Order or length of service doesn't matter in God's bestowal of the kingdom. There's this this Jewish writing from about a century or two before Christ, which speaks of the judgment like a circle. And it says, those who are last will not be behind, and those who are first will not be in front. I believe that's right. That's the only sense in which verse 16 can account for the equality of outcome here. Why is the outcome equal? Because order or length of service is indifferent in the bestowal of the kingdom. Not in rewards, but in the gift of the kingdom. So it's a difficult parable. But there are two pretty simple applications for us here. And I want to close with them. The first one is this. We have to guard that we do not fall into the envy of the counters. We have to give up comparing ourselves to other people. When we've done everything that God has required, we're still unprofitable servants. There's great liberty and freedom in that. But we quickly fall into a contractual mindset. And then then we find that we envy the gifts and the service of other people. Especially if we've been around a long time and they're newcomers to the kingdom. We're always debtors to grace alone. And forgetting this, forgetting this is the error of those carping first hired workers. And secondly, then, there is this. We cannot measure God's generosity by human calculation. We can't measure God's generosity by human calculation. My grandmother had a hard time with that. He's no man's debtor, and he freely bestows the kingdom, the same everlasting glorious kingdom on all, regardless of when he summons them into the vineyard. 
Praise be to God for the sovereign, inscrutable generosity which bestows the kingdom. Amen.